And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of y'all would like a new car for a penny? Now, we're talking 1947 pennies, so actually 1943 pennies, so that, you know, might be worth a nickel today, I don't know, a dime, whatever. Uh, In 1947, there was a rumor spread just across America that the Ford Motor Company would give away a Ford in exchange for every copper penny dated 1943. Well, the rumor spread so fast that Ford was just, throughout the uh, country, their their phones were jammed with people wanting more information. Likewise, the Mint also received a large volume of inquiries. Now, as it turned out, it was a hoax. The statistics of the Mint show that in 1943, there was over a billion pennies printed that were steel zinc. But because of a shortage in copper, the number of copper pennies printed that year was exactly zero. Interesting, right? Well, there's been a rumor spread abroad uh, the world for centuries that entrance into the heaven of into heaven can be obtained by good works, uh, but it's not true. The fact is, there are no good works made on this earth that are acceptable in heaven. All of our works are tainted by sin. In fact, Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 64, 6. He says that all of our righteousness, whatever that might be, all of our righteousness before the Lord is as filthy rags. The only righteousness that gains entrance to heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that is graciously imputed to sinners who believe in Him. That's what we've been talking about for the past couple months. Your eternal destiny depends on your understanding and personally uh, believing the truth that Paul has been hammering on here in chapter 4, that we are justified or we are made right with God simply by faith alone. We're not justified by works. We're not justified by our moral behavior, but rather by faith in God who credits righteousness to the ungodly apart from works. We've seen that phrase two or three times. The blessing is not based on any religious rituals or on keeping any kind of law. Those things, as we've seen, only serve to condemn us. Rather, as Paul shows, saving faith, four things here, it's rooted in God's grace, It rests on God's promise, it revels in God's glory, and it relies on God's power. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we we thank you again for an opportunity just to break open your word and and to see what you've got for us. We pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand this truth. And Father, if there's anybody here that is in any way relying on themselves, what they have done, what they plan on doing, any rituals that they have performed, Father, they must be abandoned. Help them to see the truth that Jesus indeed is the only way to heaven. Do that in our hearts, and we'll thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Paul, in our passage this morning, is arguing that Abraham, the one that the Jews rightly extolled as the father of their faith, that he was justified by faith alone, not by being circumcised, not by keeping the law. We looked at that last week. Remember, circumcision came about 14 years after he believed? And the law came 430 years after Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So as such, Abraham is not only the father of the believing Jews, but also of Gentiles who believe. 
So Paul now expounds on the nature of Abraham's faith, and it's really as an example for all of us. So number one, saving faith is rooted in God's grace and not in human performance. So after pointing out that the law brings wrath and not salvation in verse 15, Paul continues in verse 16 here this morning, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now that verse is a very good summary of chapter 4, 1 through 15. 1 through 15, now we're on 16, all right? It's a really good summary. The it that is referred to there in verse 16 is the promised inheritance to Abraham, which was not promised on the basis of obedience of the law, but rather through the righteousness of faith. Now the reason that this promised inheritance is by faith is so that it can be according to grace. Paul explained this way back in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, now to the one who works. How many of y'all work? So you all done, you know, boy, nobody works here? Golly, yeah. If you work, you know, you know how this goes. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor. That word favor is the Greek word charis. It, it's grace. So let me read that again and just put that word in there. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as grace, but as what is due. And we understand that. And then he continues, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The point is, is really simple. If salvation comes to us as a wage that we deserve because of our good works, then it is not by grace. What's the basic defin definition of grace? The unmerited favor of God. God, if this was wage, God would owe it to us. And of course, then we could boast in, in, in our own efforts which obtained it. Salvation would not be a gift, but a wage. But God only gives it as a free gift. That way, no man can boast. When Paul mentions in verse 16, those who are of the law, he's referring to believing Jews. Okay, He's not referring to all Jews. If he meant all Jews, then that would be a total contradiction of what he just said in, in verse 15, that the law actually brings about wrath. So he means that since the promise of becoming an heir of righteousness is by faith, it's available to all who believe. Gentiles, they do not need to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Rather, Jews and Gentiles alike must believe in Jesus to be saved. Now that may sound funny because the Old Testament didn't know who Jesus was, but they were looking for a Messiah. So in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to what God was going to do through the Messiah. Well, Jesus plainly says He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And now we look back at that realization, what He brought to the forefront, that He is actually the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, they looked forward in faith. Today, we look back in faith at what Christ has done for us. Now, Paul says that faith as opposed to law or any type of human performance guarantees this promise. If salvation were based on our good deeds, how could we ever know we've done enough? As I pointed out uh, last time, this is kind of the problem with the Roman Catholic system of adding our works to faith in order to accumulate enough merit for heaven. 
So tell me, when have you done enough service to the poor? Uh, when have you done enough or, or given enough money? When have you been honest enough? When have you demonstrated that your love for God is pure and fervent enough? When have you arrived at loving your neighbor as in fact you do love yourself? If you base salvation on any type of works, you're always going to be plagued with doubts. And so we must all come to God with the faith of Abraham, as verse 16 says, who is the father of us all. Now that faith is rooted in God's gracious promise, simply a promise, to declare righteous all who believed in Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sin. And it's available to all people without distinction. Now perhaps today, like the Jews in Paul's day, uh, you, you come from a religious background. God needs to open your eyes so that you see yourself as a guilty sinner who cannot earn salvation by your own efforts. And if you respond to God's gracious promise by faith, He will credit the righteousness of Christ to your account. Or perhaps like the Gentiles, you come from a pagan background. That's not uncommon at all these days. You have lived uh, to pursue pleasure through sin, through what you want to do, whatever that might be. But if God opens your eyes to see that you are a guilty sinner and that He offers a full pardon to those who believe in Jesus' death as the payment for that sin, then He'll credit Christ's righteousness to you as well the instant you believe in Jesus. So the faith of Abraham guarantees the promise to all. And Paul goes on to expound on Abraham's faith here. My second major point, saving faith rests in God's promise no matter how likely it may seem. The citation from Genesis 17.5 in verse 17 of our passage today, it's parenthetical, it's kind of an afterthought. And Paul says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, that's a quote of Genesis 17.5. Let's go back to Genesis 17, just have a quick history lesson. Abraham was 99 years old. God had promised to give him a son through Sarah 25 years earlier, but they still had no son. Now, at their age, the prospects of having a son literally seemed impossible. Abraham was almost 100. Sarah was about 90. She had been barren her entire life, and now both of them were past the age of conceiving a child. At this point, the Lord appeared to Abraham and promised to establish His covenant with him, which included making him the father of a multitude of nations. And in light of this, God gave Abram, that was his name, Okay, from Genesis 17, at this section on, he becomes Abraham. What does Abraham, Abram mean? Abram means exalted father. But God gave him a new name, Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, Abraham, the father of a multitude. Then the citation that is in our text follows, and God says, Abraham, <laughs> even though you have not had a child yet with Sarah, I have made you a father of many nations. As Abraham stood there before God, although the promise was outside of the realm of human possibility, Abraham believed God. And Paul describes God here as the one who gives life to the dead. 
and calls into existence the things which do not exist. Now that faith was not without its struggles, and we'll, we'll see that in just a minute, but the point is Abraham believed God's promise, even though the fulfillment of it was humanly impossible and, and just seemed you know, out of the question. To believe in God's promise is the same as to believe in God's person. If I promise to do something for you, but you don't believe my promise, in effect, you're calling me a liar. You're saying that I won't do what I have promised to do. If God promises something and we refuse to believe it, we've called God a liar. Now, Paul emphasizes God's promise in chapter 4 in verses 13, 14, 16, 20, and 21. It's about a promise, the child of promise. Leon Morris writes, Abraham had nothing going for him except the promise of God, but, but for the man of faith, that was enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, Abraham believed the bare word of God and nothing else whatsoever. Then he adds, faith is content with the bare word of God because he is God. <laughs> now, it's easy to sit here and think, you know, I think I'd believe too, believe God as well if he came to me and promised me something. But would we? The promise flew in the face of every human consideration. First, Sarah, had been bare, who had been barren her entire life, had now gone through menopause. Abraham was about 100 years old. So when God told him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations and that Sarah would actually be the mother of nations, Abraham laughed. And he asked God that Ishmael, the son that he did have, not through Sarah, but through Hagar, that Ishmael might be the heir. But God insisted that the heir would come through Sarah. Then there was this embarrassing matter of changing his name. Abram was embarrassing enough. When, when people met him, they would probably ask, Abram, hmm, exalted father, just how many children do you have? Abraham would shuffle his feet and look down and clear his throat, and he'd say, one and he probably wouldn't tell them that it wasn't even with his wife. It was with his wife's servant. Well, Abraham probably saw a lot of people roll their eyes as they thought, exalted father. And here he is, 99 years old, and he only has one child. Yeah, sure. But now, after God appears to him, the next day you can just see Abraham coming back and saying, I have a new name. God gave it to me last night. You know, Abraham had, Abraham had a big house, right? <laughs> Household. He had over 300 servants, okay? Everyone is waiting and thinking, oh, maybe he's finally going to take a name that reflects reality. And then Abram says, my new name is Abraham, father of a multitude. And you just see the servants kind of turning around and putting their hands over their mouth to keep from laughing, thinking, man, the old man has lost it. But Abraham believed God and his promise, even though it was humanly impossible to be fulfilled. We look back in history and we can see how the promise was fulfilled literally through the many descendants of Isaac and Jacob, Ishmael and Esau, and then later through his sons with Keturah after Sarah had passed away. But the promise has been fulfilled even more so through the spiritual descendants of the seed of Abraham, 
Jesus Christ with the gospel going around the world to all the nations. But Abraham didn't see any of this, did he? He died in faith, as Hebrew says, without receiving the promises. Now, before we leave this point, let's apply it to God's promise of salvation. He promises to justify and to give eternal life to the ungodly person who believes in Jesus. Where do you learn about this promise? Well, our only source today is the Word of God. You're not going to learn how to have eternal life by studying nature. You can, you can learn an awful lot from nature. And you can actually understand and see that, yes, there is a God, but it's not going to lead you to salvation. You're not going to deduce it salvation from logic or philosophy. You won't learn it by studying human behavior. You'll learn a lot about sin studying human, human behavior, but that's about it. The only source that we have is the written Word of God conveyed to us by the apostles and the prophets Here's the question. Do you believe it? Have you put your trust of eternal life in God's promise as recorded in His Word? If not, guess what? You're actually calling God a liar. Another application of this is when you talk to people about the gospel, cite God's Word. Encourage people to read it, especially the Gospel of John. I was talking to Brother Kenneth back there. He is discipling a group of young believers, and they're going through the Gospel of John because in chapter, I believe it's chapter 20, isn't it, uh, um, uh, Brother Holland? John tells us the purpose that he wrote his Gospel. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's what everybody needs to know and to come to grips with. Later in, in chapter 10, Paul is going to tell us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The Word is powerful to save sinners. Well, number three, uh, saving faith revels in God's glory, not in human effort or, or willpower. Paul writes in verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham's faith was solidly God-centered. He didn't believe in himself. He didn't have faith in faith. He wasn't an optimist who practiced positive thinking. He didn't think if Sarah and I just visualize the goal uh, and then try again, we'll succeed. No, looking away from the uh, circumstances, looking away from himself, he believed God and God's promise so that God got the glory. Way back in Romans 1.21, we saw that the fundamental sin of the human race was that even though they knew God, that was from nature, okay, they understand that God exists, even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him or give Him thanks. But here, Abraham grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. Now, this teaches us that our faith should grow. Weak faith or, or little faith is still faith, but we should grow strong in the faith. Now, the Greek verb is passive, and, and it reads like this, Abraham was strengthened, was strengthened in faith. That implies that it wasn't Abraham's doing. 
that it was from God. Faith is God's gift to us. And yet, like so many gifts of God, it is our responsibility to appropriate it and to grow in it. So how do we go, how do we grow in faith? Well, the key is to grow in your knowledge of the object of your faith, namely God. Faith is only as good as the object. If you have a really strong faith in a faulty bridge, it's going to collapse under you in spite of your strong faith. Let's go the opposite direction. You can have a weak faith in a strong bridge that will hold you, that will hold you up along with 50 other uh, you know, uh, 18-wheelers that are right next to you. But your weak faith does not glorify the strong bridge for what it really is. The right way to have strong faith that actually glorifies the bridge is to know that the engineer who built the bridge is competent. He knows what he's doing. And that the company that constructed it, it has a solid reputation of not cutting corners. Your knowledge of your bridge, of that bridge, would increase your faith in that bridge, even though it may go over a frightening chasm below. Your strong faith stems from your knowledge that this is a trustworthy bridge. That way, the bridge gets the glory. To grow in faith, study God's attributes. Study the object of our faith. Study uh, His ways as revealed in Scripture. See how He has been faithful to His Word in the past. See how He has kept His promises to His people, even in the face of just staggering odds. Read how He has acted in the history of the Bible. Read the history of the saints who have trusted Him. In some cases, He delivers them miraculously. At other times, they were tortured, thrown into prison, stoned, sawn in two, and put to death by the sword. But in no case did God ever abandon His people or act unfaithfully to His promises. Over in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it tells us that God has a precise number of martyrs who will be killed before He finally judges the world. But the evil deeds of wicked men do not threaten God's sovereign power or His plan. Study His attributes and His ways, and you will grow in faith. Here's another way to grow in your faith. Put your faith into action. As you act in faith and see God work, your faith is strengthened to trust Him next time. We need to be careful not to misapply His promises. Remember John the Baptist? He's in prison. He's confused. He thought if he was the Messiah's forerunner and Jesus was the Messiah, then why am I in prison? He shouldn't be in prison. So Jesus gently assured John that, yes, he was indeed the Messiah. But as you know, John did not get out of prison alive. But even if God's will is our death, we can glorify him by dying in faith as we look forward to the promise of eternal life. Faith doesn't glory in human effort or human willpower, but in God alone. Salvation is totally from God, and so saving faith properly gives Him all the glory that He deserves. So saving faith, it's rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. 
It reveals God's glory. And finally, number four, saving faith relies on God's power to keep His promise in spite of human inability. Now these verses, they contrast Abraham's hopeless inability with God's mighty power. you got Abraham and Sarah, who's eh, just not going to happen, and God on the other side. Abraham and Sarah, they're both past their human ability to conceive a child. And even when they were in their prime, Sarah could not conceive. But God waited till they were clearly past all ability to conceive so that the greatness of the power would be in God. As Paul says, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, verse 19 says that Abraham considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a year, a hundred years old, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. If you've got King James, it follows a textual variant that Abraham did not consider his own body. But the better reading, both textually and contextually, says that he did consider it. In other words, he didn't ignore reality. He didn't close his eyes to the, to the obvious and then just have blind faith. Rather, he faced the reality of his and Sarah's complete inability to conceive that promised son. When, when Paul says that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, he's kind of looking at the overall pattern of Abraham's life and final result, not his momentary lapses of faith. He had those. Uh, he wavered in faith when he took Hagar. Remember Hagar? This was Sarah's maidservant. Sarah says, I can't get pregnant. Here, marry my maidservant. Have a child through, through her. And he does. That's Ishmael. And you know who Ishmael turns into, don't you? It's the Arab nations of today. Those two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, are still going at it. Okay? Anyway, uh, and, and then once they had Ishmael, uh, Abraham is like, Make him the heir. And God press, promises to bless Ishmael because he's Abraham's child. And then you have this phrase, in hope against hope. That implies the struggle of faith that Abraham experienced and that we all experience if we're walking by faith. We're going to have these times. Circumstances, they have a way of dashing our hope. But against that, we fight back in hope. Our faith and our hope, they're not in ourselves or our ability or any type of positive attitude that, you know, everything's going to turn out fine for those who believe. No, our faith and our hope are in the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into being that which does not exist. He renewed Abraham and Sarah's dead bodies to produce Isaac, the son of promise. And he said, I have made you the father of many nations. Before he ever had Isaac, before Sarah was ever pregnant, God's word said that back in the beginning, he said, let there be light, and there was light. God's word is effectual. It accomplishes what it says. Paul applies this to our salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God who said, light shall, shine out, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Saving faith relies on God's power to keep His promises, not on any human ability. 
Verse 22, the last verse in our passage this morning says, it, it kind of shows you the cumulative results of Abraham's faith. It says, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul repeats that verse in verse 3, 5, 9, and now here. He alludes to it in verse 6, 8, 11, and 13. He has repeatedly mentioned faith or believe, and oftentimes in deliberate contrast to human works. He wants us to see that we are justified or declared righteous by faith alone in God's promise, not by any works or by any merit added to it. Since God's salvation is by grace through faith apart from works, we can join Abraham, as verse 22 says, being fully assured, verse 21, that what God has promised, He is able to perform. There was this older granny who had never flown on a plane, didn't want to fly on a plane, but some occasion came up and she had to fly. And the children and grandchildren were telling her, Granny, it's safer than driving. You're going to be fine. And so she finally, you know, assented and, and got on the plane and went and, and came back safely, of course. And so the family is meeting their, meeting her there at the airport and they say, How'd it go, Granny? Did that plane hold you up? And she reluctantly agreed, Yeah. But then she added, but I never really put my full weight down on it. <laughs> right? She held her feet up or something. I don't know. Could your faith in Jesus Christ to save you be like that? You believe in Him. That's what chapter, is four, chapter 4 is about. Okay. Matter of fact, if you don't believe that, just read verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith. What's the therefore for? It's to show you chapter 4. It sums it up. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That's what it's all about. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you're keeping that foot of works in the mix. Just in case. Saving, foot, saving faith puts all of its weight on Jesus Christ and His shed blood. I learned this a long time ago, folks. If you, if you want to judge your, uh, let's say, righteousness or even your, your salvation or whatever on your works, I promise you it will lead to despair. Because our works, even as believers, are largely tainted by sin. Does God ever use us for His purpose? Absolutely! But we still have the sin nature uh, there's coming a day when we won't. <laughs> that will not be an issue anymore. So saving faith puts all of its weight on Christ and His shed blood. That's what you need to look for in terms of your assurance of salvation, the promise of God. For Abraham, the promise was, I have made you the father of many nations. And it turns out, God was right. His promise for you today is Jesus died for your sin. Trust Him with your eternity. Not anything that you do, not anything that you could do, not thing, anything you've ever done. Trust in Him and Him alone and what He accomplished on the cross. That's where you will get grounded in your faith is looking to Jesus. So, saving faith is rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise it revels in God's glory and it relies on His power. Make sure that you trust in Christ 
alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You once again just for Your Word. Uh, it is so powerful. Uh, it, it, it reveals what's really in our hearts in ways that nothing else in this world can do. So God, I pray that You would speak to our hearts this morning. And if there's anyone here that is still trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ, maybe it's just the fact that we're still young and we have plenty of time to deal with this down the road. Father, I pray that You would show the insanity of that thought. We are not promised another breath. So Father, I pray by the power of Your Spirit, You would open eyes to see Jesus for who He really is this morning. And you do a work in those hearts to draw them to yourself to become a child of yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to have a song of invitation, give you a chance to uh, respond. If Christ is speaking to you this morning, you could be in here, you could be a member of this church for 30, 40, 50 years, and you can think that you're doing just fine. But part of the reason you think you're saved because you've been a member for 30, 40, 50 years. That ain't going to cut it. All right? You need to come to a realization. doesn't matter what your past is, what you've done. It's based on what you have done with Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Have you trusted in Him alone? If you haven't, I encourage you to come forward today. The uh, Bible talks about the fact that we show repentance towards God. He is the one we have sinned against, and we've all sinned. That results in separation. The only thing that can heal that is Jesus Christ. And you trust in Jesus. You, you repent towards God. You ask Him to forgive you. And you trust Jesus for what He has done on the cross. It's simple, y'all. But you need to do it yourself. Can't depend on grandmama. She's a great Christian. Of course, I'm going to heaven. No. It's individual. That's you today. You come forward. Maybe you're a believer. And you still kind of have that toe in the works. And if you see yourself based on your works... Man, even as a believer, it can be so disheartening. Look to Christ. He's the only one that's never going to let you down. Look to Him. He will give you that assurance based on that promise that He died, the Lamb of God. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has He taken away your sin today? Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.